Welcome to Interplay Conversations in Music. This is Michael Shapiro, your host, today with Alexander Sadi, my guest. So good to see you today. It's wonderful to be here. Delighted. Alexander Maestro, I just experienced the most wonderful night at the Metropolitan Opera with my daughter, who I brought to see Puccini's Madame Butterfly in the Anthony Minghella Sterling production of the opera, and saw you for the first time conducting. And I said to Elena, see that man? He's the real deal. Look at the way he's phrasing. <laughs> it was just absolutely, Alexander, it was just absolutely magnificent. And the orchestra sounded great, and the drama, and the, the fact that everyone was so together and moving together as one. You started, and I am very sympathetic, because I was, like you, a repetitor, co-repetitor, coach. I started at the Zurich Opera, but I'm a composer and not a conductor like you, and I went a different direction, but I know what you've been through. So let's talk about that traditional Felix Weingartner, you know, 14 <laughs> years in the trenches you did and have done and are continuing to do, but now stretching out, of course, into symphony work. Talk about that training and why, for you, it was so important. Well, it's first of all, officially, I'd like to say how delighted I am to be here. What a great Happy privilege. And, oh, uh, and also what a, what a great compliment for... Um, yeah, it, it's very special when you do a performance that obviously you invest everything you can into and it's appreciated that, that someone with your knowledge and experience um, sees what at least I'm trying to do and, and sometimes achieve. But um, I think we all know in the profession that our jobs are about attempting the very best, risking and, and pushing the boundaries, seeing how far we can go. And, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I think that's something that's very important um about live performance generally and sort of brings me back to my to your first question um because uh the i think what having done this route the slow route um you simply gather opera miles behind you you have just many 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 evenings uh in the theater in the pit at the piano where you just without pressure all the time, without the constant, constant observance, um, where you, you get to try things out. You get to, you get to experiment and work out, just, just extend your knowledge as far as possible. Um, so I always believed that the best route to being a conductor um, was through the opera house. And certainly with my particular set of skills as a pianist, as a sight reader, uh, with languages, um, it was what suited me, but I also believe it, it makes me a better conductor today because um, there's no shortcuts. You, you sit at the piano with a singer um, and you, you coach them the role. You work in Italian, you work in German, you work in French, you work in, sometimes in English. Though I have to admit, being an Englishman, I'm probably the worst coach of English uh, that there is, um, because it's much easier when it's not your own language. Um, but what it does is it gives you an incredible understanding and, and knowledge of the, the framework of, a, of an opera and a piece. No question. Um, um, and as you go, and it's not just that, you play the piano in the rehearsals, you coach the singers. 
I then often had to do the stage music behind the stage mm -hmm. or giving the cue. I even had to prompt in the prompt box for several performances of Frau Schatten, for instance. And, and these early experiences um, give you a knowledge of a work that is, that is just unbeatable. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I feel that for me, but I also believe generally the best way, not only to conducting opera well, but actually to really learning how to develop as a conductor is to do it like this. And and I noticed that the things I learned then at the piano, as a, I, you never, you never forget. And, and you have a, you have Correct. a, this closeness to the singers, um, particularly mm -hmm. sitting with them next to them while they breathe, working out the way they use their breath, the way they breathe in, the way they use their breath speed. Um, you suddenly get this sort of instinct for when it's not going to work or what they're going to do, you know, because the problem with the Puccini opera, as you, oh as you know, is Absolutely. anything can happen. Anything can happen. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to do something very subtle with phrasing and what you really want to do, but inevitably you're presented with limitations. You're presented with a singer who's at the limit or all of a sudden doesn't have enough breath to sustain the mm -hmm. phrase or um which is which is normal you know we're dealing with uh, and in your ability to adjust to that and incorporate it quickly enough into a organic rubato organic uh -huh. phrasing is um is what you have to try and do if you're if you're doing and, and you can only do that if you if you've reacted quick enough <laughs> let's talk about quick enough yeah. I am I'm writing my third opera right now, The Slave, based on the the epic novel by Isaac Bashevis Singer, who won the Nobel Prize in nineteen seventy eight. Yeah. I do notice and I've studied opera having been a co repetitor years back and know, knowing the literature, especially of this guy, and Verdi and Puccini and Wagner and so forth, Strauss. In Puccini, the ball game is often those poco ritardandos, those rallentandos. Mm -hmm. Those accelerandos, poco accelerando. And it's always, I mean, you talked about Bohem, you did it at the Met, the start of all operas, that first act, the most difficult. Why? Tell us why. Why is it so hard? And how is it connected to, this, to the drama? Well, it's, um, I love these questions. This is what I love to talk about because this is, this is the kind of thing that, um, this the that, real I, thing. that, I, that I love. Um, there are a couple of things that, um, first of all, exactly what you say, what I find so fabulous about Puccini, there's not a single marking, not a single articulation that has, that doesn't have purpose. Um, it, it also means that there's not a single marking that should be exaggerated. Everything, everything you see, every tenuto, every ritardando, Every um, every accent, every funny little hat, every everybody writes alagando polco. Um, they all have a a meaning within the structure. They're all very carefully delineated. Um, and the death of opera or the death of performance is our traditions. And what I mean by that is, you have to be aware of traditions, but you have to understand why they came about and and you have to understand why you're doing something and i think just general as a general rule i always ask myself why are we doing this formata here why are we doing this corona is it just so the singer can show their top notes that's a legitimate reason um especially in italian music 
Um, but it's not always, and it's not always acceptable um, to allow just simply a singer to decide that they sound good on this note, I'm just going to hold it as long as I can. Because the, the priority in Puccini is the drama. And I think um, uh, that's the mistake people make often in Puccini is that it's often too slow. Um, because they, they, they start to wallow in this sort of the sound world. Um, and so it's convincing people it's helping an orchestra as well to keep going, to keep going over the bar line, to keep flowing through the phrases. Because essentially, and particularly with Puccini and the same with Strauss, um, you, you, you basically are conducting the tempo of the spoken language. That's the only thing you need Beautiful. to be aware of. Beautiful. And, and, and you, uh, the only thing, what I do most of the time when I'm coaching singers, I say, well, just say it. Say it in this language. Just say it for me. And most singers are good linguists, or so they they have a good use of um, a good understanding of the language that wow. they're singing in, and they try and talk in it. I mean, I think essentially, if you want to conduct operas, you should be able to speak the languages you, of the operas you're conducting, because once you do, you understand intimately the the sense of flow and the sense of pace that every language requires, um, and and that essentially is is the trick. I mean, Puccini. Um, it shouldn't be wallowing in, in self-pity. It should be an amazing, he times it perfectly. He's written everything he perfectly. You know, and you, know this, uh, yeah. you know, of course, yeah, the story. The, no, not quite. I love what you have said yeah. because this is my, my faux pas, what I think about all the time, mm. it, you know, especially when I'm writing songs or choral works, but certainly operatic works that they should think of the speaking and the drama, that moment. Absolutely. We've just met physically through this inter, inter, uh, internet, okay? Mm. And I hope someday we can meet over drinks or whatever. Yeah. But I saw you in the opera theater. I saw you working with, with, this, with the stage. I noticed that drama, especially in the Mingela production, which is extraordinary with the Bunraku puppets and you know his last work, uh, after he passed, before he passed, you know, yeah, after the English amazing. patient. And it's a, it's a perfect production. And mm. I'm quite critical. But getting back to Puccini, which this, to me is fabulous. The first act has, in my book, some of the most beautiful music he ever wrote mm. for someone who is really a terrible human being. Pinkerton, <laughs> the American. Yeah. yeah. He is basically raping... A kid, although yeah. we're not sure she is Quindiciani, but yeah, exactly. She believes in him, and she believes mm. in the in the, the the marriage, which is officially yeah. done. But all he's thinking about is getting back to his American bride. I mean, he's yeah. a really bad guy, and the whole yeah. xenophobia of it with the consul, who's you know, Sharpless is not a bad guy, but Pinkerton's a horror. Mm. And there she has that faith. So we have this music, which is gorgeous. Even before she shows up, the duet is amazing. Yeah. But then he ends it with, yeah. when he talks about the American bride. So when you're conducting this, it's a show, obviously. It's a Belasco show. Yeah. But talk about the conducting that's underlying exactly what you're talking about now. How do you get it all to work? Tell... Tell that person out there who's just learning this for the first time. 
Well, well, first of all, I love the story. You're talking about this. I'd love to talk just briefly about your point about the drama and about this particular, particularly butterfly. I think, um, and it's the same if you think about it in Bohem, it's the same in Tosca. He's amazing at, at painting pictures of insane love, passion, authenticity, but in flawed people. And I, and I think um, I think particularly if you look at the way Cavaradossi thinks about Tosca, we know that he, he he's actually talking about the beautiful blonde in the picture and kind of sort of <laughs> doing a gear change <laughs> to get himself back to Tosca. And you know, but he's 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 inspired by other women. You know, he's obviously a he's got that element to him. You know, he's he's a painter and a, uh, and Rodolfo's a poet, and you know, he falls in love with Mimi. Uh, straight away. I imagine he's fallen in love with quite a few women straight away. Mimi happens to stick, but you know, this is a, I think sometimes we make, it's the same for me with Butterfly, we make our, generally, it's very easy for us. We allow ourselves sometimes the excuse. If we make Pinkerton a horror, it allows us to distance ourselves from, from those elements of his personality. We can say, well, he's just a horrible human being. The truth is, these things happened all the time. This was exactly. this was this was uh, this was a actually a, a moment in history which, and you know, I'm British. You know, we have you know 400 times worse imperial history. Um, the things that our nations and in, in our history that we should be ashamed of, they happened. And if we make Pinkerton simply the most horrible creature. Um, ever we we actually end up excusing ourselves a little bit or at least um uh, not really facing the truth and yes. i think what's fascinating about this is that it, it, butterfly was the exception not pinkerton butterfly was the exception because and everyone around her even her her fellow um her, her friends around her or her, her servants around her they couldn't understand why she hadn't worked this one out you know why she still thinks she's married because everyone else had known that this was the deal you know and and that's what makes it such a tragedy is actually she is the most incredible creature she's the most she's the one who stands out from her society and uh, and and has expected something sublime and and, and genuine so i think I, I i but i think one has to therefore coming back to the piece i conduct the first act like it's real love and uh, because in a way, in that moment, they both believe it in their own way, you know, in, the, in that duet. And, and it's simply the second act in this extraordinary span is, is the process of this tragic heroine then coming to the fore. Um, so that, that's one, one thing I wanted to say about how I kind of invest in, in the first act as well, why the love duet is so beautiful. Because actually oh in that God. moment we... We believe it, it, it was you know. amazingly beautiful, and in particular, Eleonora Burata is extraordinary. Yeah. She's one of the great ones. Yeah. I, I I never heard yeah. her lie before. But well, she's, she's really wonderful. You know, first of all, you know she's wonderful because we did poem together in Berlin actually, so I knew her a bit, and it was a role wonderful. debut for her. It was a role debut, which meant that I could sit with her at the piano every day myself. And I worked with her extra, which is a huge luxury because it meant that I had, I had the girl, you know, I had, I had the girl who was going to do the butterfly that I've always wanted. Mm. And she's, 
Italian. I mean, she sings her own language so beautifully. Oh my she heavens. phrases it so naturally. It just meant that actually it's a dream to do it with yeah. someone like that because because you you're, you you don't have to question what they're going to do. Everything they do is so organic and so natural to the text. Let's talk about organic. This is quite interesting. I just came a few years ago before the pandemic. I took my daughter on a tour of Europe after she graduated high school before she went to college. And one of the places we stopped was La Scala. As I mentioned to you, we saw the, the Boema production of yeah. uh, Zeffirelli. And the thing that I noticed in particular was the playing of the orchestra, which must have played this piece, you know, gazillion times. But mm. and they had an Italian conductor. The phrasing. And I found this, too, when I conducted La Verdi in Milan recently. The phrasing of that Italian orchestra, of Scala and then La Verdi, but especially in the Puccini, my God, it was different than what I've ever heard in the States. So now you've conducted in Britain, in, on the continent, in America. Yes, there are international orchestras. Yes, they sound internationally. But I still think there is some taste of national playing, do you think? I agree. I certainly agree with you. And I think it's the lines are far more blurred probably than they ever were, given the international nature of our industry, given the fact that we uh, have so many nationalities within an orchestra. But I do agree with you entirely that there are certain things that um, with certain orchestras are are very natural. I mean, I, I'm music director in Mannheim, and they were very they're very well known for their Wagner. You know, over the last 50 years, a huge number of Mannheim orchestra players played in Bayreuth um, every summer. Horst Stein was their chief in the 60s and 70s. Ford Wengler was their chief. Erich Kleiber was their chief. They have a oh certain, they have a certain sort of this sort of tradition. I mean, their DNA is Wagner. And it's remarkable when we've done, I'll go back in a month, we're going to do the ring cycle together. Uh, I've just done a premiere of Tristan with them. We play Parsifal every year on Good Friday. They have the oldest oh Parsifal, old, oldest Wagner production in the world is their Parsifal. It's 64 years old, 65 years old. Um, and so they've played it every year for 65 years. Um, and there are just some moments when you simply start, I don't know, the beginning of the third act of Tristan, the beginning of the third act of Parsifal, the uh, everything, I mean, everything. And when we do it, you're suddenly aware they just, they have a, an understanding of this, of this language. And there are certain things that, and the way they play, um, there's just things you don't have to explain to them. Um, I can imagine, I mean, I've not actually conducted in Italy, but I can imagine that there are some things then exactly about that, particularly not only Puccini, Puccini, but I imagine a lot of things like Bel Canto, Donizetti, Verdi accompaniments, simple, what we call umpa accompaniments that we take for granted, but actually they invest with this meaning all the time, understanding. Quite, quite. Uh, and what I always try and tell orchestras is that, you know, this is, this is you know, that, that investment of, of intention. While we may think it's simple, it actually has, it, it underpins the drama. No, no, no. The, the legato the playing that, is, is yeah. phenomenal. Is phenomenal. Exactly. Nothing like I've ever heard in any other country. Yeah. I've been all over the world, and I think that's particularly with Puccini. But I do think actually, with great orchestras like the Met, you can 
without saying anything, you can show it. And that was my intention. Which you did. I tried which to... you did. You, well, there was and, a and it, lot it, of that yeah, minute the, conducting was fabulous. It, well, that's the, the trick, I guess, is also the, the Met's very, not very easy to conduct in, and particularly Puccini, because it's so big. Everything, the, the space around you is so enormous. The hall is big. The, the, the pit too, feels big. Hall, hall is way too large. Yeah, it's enormous. And um, so you, you get know. this sense, it's like a, an oil tanker, you know, you're kind of sort of, and you're, you're trying to, <laughs> I you're like trying that. To, and you're trying to do something that requires, I don't know, a wonderful little Alfa Romeo or something. I don't know. And so, you've got to actually adjust your conducting accordingly. And I, I try and stay very small and very, um, uh, very, very precise. And it's amazing how that changes their sound. It, it, it's simply, you can show everything. With great orchestras, they simply, they play immediately your body language. No, so that's why- no question about it. Yeah, that's why in front of great orchestras you have to be experienced and you have to be good because they are responding to the minutest of things. Maestro Alexander Sadi, I want to speak to, to you about your background because I find this interesting. You did go to the Royal College of Music, which is our Juilliard equivalent in the, the UK. Yeah. But you also Royal Academy. read Royal Academy. Royal Academy. I'm so sorry. Royal yeah, Academy. So as a sorry. Junior, as a junior. Yeah, no, no, no worries. <laughs> oh, you're at the Academy. I see. Yeah. Yeah. But then you read you read at Cambridge, did you not? Yeah. yeah. And what did you, are you a literature person? Well, I was, but uh, there was as always a, I was trying to decide, but I actually ended up reading musicology, um, uh, which, but it was always I was always unsure. I knew I wanted to. Cambridge was an amazing place to 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 get involved in music and the student body, and it's a great a great university. Um, but I knew that you could study English and still go into, you know, you could study lots of things or languages. Yeah. But in the end, I, I, I was glad I studied musicology. I learned a lot just simply about, um, uh, you know, I had to write fugues. I had to study, study Schenker. I had to study you know, symphonic uh, progressive forms. And, and, um, and every time I do a Bruckner symphony or a Mahler symphony or a Beethoven symphony, I'm glad of all that work that I did and composing, you know, I I didn't carry on composing like uh, because unlike you I I had no talent. <laughs> you do or you don't. Only, you do or you don't. It's only exactly this guy. This guy bites. could write a tune. By the way, he could write a tune. He was pretty good. He was, <laughs> he was pretty, pretty good, good right? <laughs> <laughs> but I sort of figured after very quickly. Look, there's enough. There's enough bad music in the world. I certainly don't want to add to it. <laughs> no, but you, it's, it's important that you did write. And it's important, obviously, very important that you're a student of literature, which you are, having understood the whole, you know. Now, as a musicologist, you've just condu you're conducting this run now of Madame Butterfly at the Met. Mm. Did you go back and look at his original try at La Scala, what he went through? Absolutely. I was, in fact, weirdly enough, I was one of the few people at Cambridge um, during one of doing one of my dissertations. Um, you know, everyone in Cambridge always wrote about, I don't know, Brahms or, or um, you know, Beethoven and, and the symphonic form or whatever. And, and while I was fascinated by that, and yeah. I, I thought, well, I'm going to do something different. So actually, I wrote about Puccini in my dissertation, one of my dissertations. And I actually wrote about Butterfly as well. And uh, I was trying to, I was trying to show how Puccini was, how great he was, because I was determined to show that, you know, 
I don't know, Butterfly is always called this sort of this shabby shogun shocker or whatever they call it. And, I know, I read that famous statement, yeah, but no, it's yeah, certainly not. It's, it's just not. And actually what I tried to explain was even this idea of the exotic, mm-hmm. he kind of um, he kind of does all that in the first act. He gets it over with. And it's why he was insisted on, on sort of sewing together the second and third acts. He wanted the whole second part to be like a Greek tragedy, just a, a unity of time and place, and and uh, and watch this this awful descent of Madame Butterfly, how she she goes from hope to despair to death, and um, and it's structured harmonically. You could do a Schenker analysis of how unbelievably precise he is with with. I'm gonna. You know, the way he, for instance, he takes vertical harmonies in the first part um, and he sort of, through the love duet, he kind of puts them horizontally, you know, mm-hmm. and he put the conflict of tonality that then gets resolved between the two of them is reflected in a in a in in the the chords that accompany butterfly when she arrives. This is fabulous because you are talking about something I tell my private students. You cannot think one dimensionally if you're a composer. It has mm-hmm. to be this this, this, as many dimensions as you can go. And the greatest composers, yeah. this guy, Puccini, Wagner, certainly, in the operas, they think their operas are not on one level. They're yeah. always operating on many. And your attention to literature is magnificent. I, I just love when you were talking about teaching the singers to, to, to talk through the piece. Mm-hmm. I would tell you also the diction was quite clear throughout and yeah, I'm, I'm sure you had. Them. I'm sure you had something to do with it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> well, I nagged let's, them a lot. Yeah. Well, that's okay. A few other things uh, before we, we we adjourn. You re, you conducted at the Staatsoper in, in Vienna, which is Gustav Mahler's old house. Yeah. And I noticed that you conducted Carmen there without rehearsal. Mm. Was that was that the new production with the cars? Yeah, I just took over one of the last shows because they, um, I'd already, I just, at that season, I'd already done Electra and Zalome there. Oh, this is a previous um, season because I saw it this past a, year. Yeah, well, exactly. This so the, the beginning of the last year, I did Electra and Zalome. And so it was a, um, uh, often what happens is you have a number of shows there and they go, well, could you, could you possibly do a Carmen? We need, I say, oh, go on then. <laughs> and uh, you know, wow. I had no rehearsal for any, for any of them. A so. friend of mine who conducted there in November had no rehearsal either. He just went in and he conducted Carmen. Yeah. It was his premiere too. And I said to him, "Are you insane? <laughs> this is just of all pieces, my God!" But yeah. the the only good news was I don't think it had the recitative, which was a good thing. <laughs> yeah, you see, I can't stand the recits, and they they it's it's the French dialogue which I love, the proper opera comique. Um, Correct. Yeah, but I imagine your question is uh, this idea of conducting without rehearsal. Oh my heavens! If I... Look, it's um, that's the other it thing. Against, I believe it goes in... against the grain, doesn't it? <laughs> well, you know what? It doesn't. And and when you ask the question, why are there no Clybers around? Why was Clyber so great, or whatever? Yes, toward the end of his life, he had a hundred rehearsals, but the man started in German pits doing operetta on no rehearsal. Um, and it's the That's best it training for yeah. conductors because essentially great orchestras great orchestras they want to see first if you can show it then you understand it 
if you can Brilliant. if you can if you can do this all then then your knowledge is good enough and they're good enough they know it well enough if you've got half an hour to stand and talk at them you know you, you have to kind of earn that right and i kind of i'm all for that um what am i you know i did electro on no rehearsal i did zalome on no rehearsal in vienna oh my heavens if i had one rehearsal what am i going to realistically achieve in a rehearsal with the vienna philharmonic on zalome oh no um, they know it better than you do as sir course. thomas as sir thomas Beecham once said <laughs> but listen i'm not thinking of the orchestra i'm thinking of yeah. you and the you and the singers and the and the drama dramatists yeah that's what i'm thinking of mm, yeah yeah it's um that's also tough i mean they they get they get a few scenic rehearsals with piano and i'm there for that so we we do i often will i will often see my singers and do a do a music rehearsal with them and um but again that kind of also is is, is an art it's a skill what kind of music rehearsal can you do at that stage well um you have to do a very clever mixture of of getting some of the things you want, establishing an agreement on essentially the tempo you want to take and mm-hmm. so they know what you're going to roughly conduct. But what you're really doing as well is you're listening very hard. Fascinating. Because you know they'll do about 25% of it they'll manage, but you know most of the time they'll fall back on what they've always done. So you're also listening and going, okay, G is going to breathe there or yes, yeah, she she is going to take more time there than I want her to, but I'm mm-hmm. prepared for it. And mm-hmm. So there are certain little sort of tricks, but but I do find, I mean, I spent a lot of my early, you know, my, you know, when I was in Hamburg as a Kapellmeister then, and then um, even as early as a music director in, in Klagenfurt, and just developing this um, knowledge of the repertory and also developing the instincts that, that make it possible to then go in on the rehearsal. No, in life we often have no choice, but sometimes we do. <laughs> Although we we have the desire and vision. So, to conclude our talk, what's next for you, and what are your visions? What do you want to do? Oh, I have um, had enormous uh, fortune actually in the last years because I because of actually Electra and Zalame in Vienna. I had an enormous success there with the orchestra. Thanks to my time in Mannheim, you know, I was able to come in and really, I knew these pieces and I came in on the rehearsal and with the orchestra, it was an immense privilege and also an immense joy and success. Mm-hmm. And with the press there, I had a, an, an extraordinary uh, fortunate, um, just a very positive experience. I even, um, one paper even favorably said that this may be some of the best conducting since Carlos Kleiber here in Vienna. So yeah, I read that. That's so, pretty incredible. So, so I sort of went to myself, okay, well, that's quite nice. Um, <laughs> no, what, what, we shall keep so it in perspective. Bit, exactly. Don't you worry. We, um, I've, I've known for a long time, I've had just as many bad ones as I've had good ones. You know, <laughs> you, you ignore both. But what it yeah. meant was that actually, I suppose it's been a wonderful um, uh, start in Vienna and and so we're actually going to be I'm finishing my contract in Mannheim which has been a wonderful six years and we're going to move to Vienna mm. and I have a lot of uh, a lot of evenings in Vienna over the next years I'm making my Covent Garden debut in, in a Lovely. few months and and to do more in my home my home country is always what you want I've never worked much in my in England um, and I'm going to enjoy the next years really uh, doing a lot more symphonic work but also um just enjoying guesting in, in big houses and and enjoy that experience. But for me, um, 
I will always want to run my own opera house because um, what I've enjoyed in Mannheim and enjoyed in Klagenfurt even before that was the 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 level of work you do in your own house is is always your best. Of course. It's, it, and, and it's about being there all the time. Mm-hmm. I've been there all the time in Mannheim. I said no all the time to other things because that closeness that mm-hmm. um, is a musical family. And, mm-hmm. you know, I have a family myself. I have, I enjoy the balance of, of working in my own opera house as well. So I think right. I've always, will always love opera. I, I will always feel at home in the opera pit because it's just, I love the drama. I love the singers. I love the repertoire. Um, but I, I look forward to also continuing you know, uh, my concert work and uh, extending my repertoire and, and experiencing even more of that repertory. So, so in other words, the, um, my goals are to be privileged enough to be doing what I'm already doing, which is to conduct amazing artists, beautiful orchestras and great singers and, and, uh, and hopefully meet great people like you who appreciate it. <laughs> well, it's easy to appreciate the, the best. And I just enjoyed it so much. You know, you talk about also the nexus between uh, opera and symphonic work. There's a, there's a wonderful book written about the piano concerto, concerti of this fella and how they're related to the operas. It's yeah. really fascinating. And us who have done both, because as you know, I've written symphonic and, and, and vocal music, mm-hmm. the nexus is there always. Mm-hmm. And even when, when you conduct uh, uh, you know, symphonic music, you're, you're bringing all of your operatic training to tell that oboe how to shape or those violins. Absolutely. It's all the same I think it, stuff. It teach, you're so right. And it teaches you, opera teaches you risk. Because right. if you can phrase and, and make music in the in this amazingly complex thing which you're trying to hold together if you if you're uh-huh. prepared to, to to focus on musical values rather than just simple you know keeping it together um then conducting a symphony is you're even more free but i think most importantly the only thing it teaches you breath breathing is the Bravo. key to, totally. to all music making, to phrasing, to all music. We essentially, how did we first play instruments? Why did we first play instruments? Why did we first create instruments? We were trying to recreate the human voice. And and what you're out trying of, to do is get... Yeah, out sorry. of bones. Out of bones. Yeah, out of bones. And we were trying <laughs> to get... And basically, the orchestra is, the hum, is, another, is another voice. And you're trying to get them to phrase as one, to breathe mm-hmm. as one, and, mm-hmm. to, and to, to balance as one, and to, right. to make an organic... Organic... Bravo. But, but beautiful whole. I guess that's well, my musical mantra. Bravo, Maestro Alexander Sade, who I first encountered at Madame of Butterfly, just now at, at the Met. And when this goes broadcast, you'll be somewhere else. I know you're going to Atlanta <laughs> and many other places. But thank yeah. you for joining us and breathing with us together on Interplay. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. This is Michael Shapiro, your host on Interplay Conversations in Music, in this wonderful conversation with Maestro Alexander Sadi. Thank you for joining us.